When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Scott Benjamin. And I am Ben Bowling. And we're going to tackle a topic today that I think is um, long overdue. Long overdue. I agree with you, Scott. This is a car that is close to both of us. You know, we have it in our past. Yeah, we have uh, we have experiences with this car. I mean, you know, one way or the other. And, uh, and we'll talk about that, I promise. Mm-hmm. But this is a topic that... I think, man, I think a lot of listeners have wanted to hear about this. We've got a couple of emails here from people recently have written in. I, if there were some lost in you know, that uh, that distant car stuff or even high-speed stuff email box. That, oh, wow. Um, Deep cut. I've been kind of searching through that recently to find some old, old suggestions, as you remember in that last podcast. But Yeah. So today we're talking about the MR2. And I think this is one that, you know, listeners have... Uh, have wanted to hear about it. We've got a few, at least from recent, you know, recent emails. And, uh, this is maybe not including everybody from that, uh, that old high speed stuff email folder that, you know, I've been digging through to get some of the, the topics recently. Yeah. Um, <laughs> making good on promises from five years ago. But, um, <laughs> anyways, this is one that, um, I think these last two listeners that wrote in had a really good point. Um, one wrote in and just kind of a sort of a request, and then we'll get to the other one that's an actual request. How about that? And Sounds great. The sort of request came about in a roundabout way like this. Um, it was a tall guy. He said he was six foot three. Uh, what's his name? Johnny? Oh, Johnny? yeah, I remember this. Six foot three. He says that he's mostly legs and never really fit into a Miata, but he owned a, a 1991 MR2 and had plenty of leg room thanks to, you know, the fact that the engine was behind him. Right. And, um, mentions that, you know, it's kind of an impractical thing for him to have now. He's in a, I think a Toyota 4Runner. Um, at least for the time being, but he does want to get back into kind of a small sports car. I was wondering if we could do a small, affordable sports car podcast that would kind of meet his needs. You know, someone who's really tall, someone who wants something that's kind of fun and sporty, but something that's not going to break, uh, break the bank either. Right. And we meant he has a list of a couple of cars mm-hmm. as, um, nominees for this. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I think we had mentioned this email in a previous episode. Well, guess what, Johnny? Today is the day. Yeah, that's right. So we're getting to this one. Yeah, he mentioned, I think, the, uh, the Miata, the, of course, the MR2 and the mm-hmm. Porsche Boxster, I think, was another one. He mentioned, uh, the Lotus Elise, but that may be a little out of his budget, he said. Yeah. Um, understandable. That's an expensive car. So, Johnny, we're going to get to that stuff, I, I promise. 
um, MR2 at least today. And that's not the only email. The, the other email is the more direct request, and this is one um, from a guy named uh, Spencer. And Spencer says, well, first of all, thank you for making these entertaining and informative podcasts. I'm going to throw in a couple of the complimentary things. Oh, hey, thanks, Spencer. Thanks um, for listening. He always looks forward to the next one, and he's working his way through all of our podcasts, and keeps finding more and more gems of automotive infotainment. Not bad. That's pretty nice. Good yeah. That's, uh, why, that's why I'm reading it. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, it says he makes, uh, we make a, his boring workday more entertaining, but he would love to hear a podcast concerning mid-engine layouts. And people think of these as being race cars or exotics, um, cars that, you know, are very, very expensive out of, you know, typical budget, I guess. You know, people can't really afford those types of things. But there have been a lot of attempts to make some mid-engine, relatively affordable sports cars, um, you know, that, that at prices that people can really afford, like the Pontiac Fiero. The Toyota MR2, or the MRS, as he says, mm-hmm. uh, the Renault Clio V6, you know, those are some of the ones that, that come to mind. I think uh, maybe you mentioned the, the Elise here, too. I'm not sure. But he says there are also some serious pros and cons with each one, you know, with that type of engineering choice, you know, with the mid-engine layout. So he says that um, he, he's also guessing that both you and I have experience of some kind with a with an MR2 in our past and he's right but you <laughs> know neither right. neither one of us has, have owned an MR2 or a Fiero. Nope. You haven't owned a Fiero, have you? Nope. Okay, me I neither. Wish. But uh, he says all petrol heads should have the pleasure of experiencing one of these pieces of automotive history at some point in their history. So Spencer and uh and Johnny, we're going to talk about the MR2 today because there is a lot of fascinating history involved in this thing. Yes. Now, I'm going to start unless you want to go further back. I'm going to start in 1976. Okay. All right. Here's why. In 1976, Toyota launched this design project that wanted to tackle a couple of things. They wanted to make a car that you would enjoy driving and still be able to get a decent fuel economy from. Mm-hmm. Now, what's what's interesting about that is that means that in the very beginning, what would become the MR2 was not meant to be a sports car. Yeah, that's uh, that's strange because – and also the, the date – also, uh, is confusing to me, Ben. Seventy six. You mentioned seventy six, and and we'll find out that the first generation MR two didn't debut until nineteen eighty four. So we're talking about an eight year lag in time. Now, mm-hmm. I also found that uh, design work on this whole thing. You mentioned seventy six. Yeah. Design work didn't start until nineteen seventy nine. Right when uh, Akio Yoshida, right from uh, Toyota's testing department, started to look at different alternatives for engine engine placement. Mm-hmm. And that's this is where it gets really interesting because so they start out with this idea, they just want a car that's that's an enjoyable ride, but also is not going to break the bank with petrol. And then they start asking for some out of the box or innovations, yeah. you know? See initially it sounds Perfectly pedestrian, you yeah. Know, like it's yeah. Uh, it's just uh, business as usual at Toyota, right? And yeah. uh, but they do say they want something unusual. They want something different, mm-hmm. and and it shifts at some point. You know, it shifts the the, the design direction goes into this uh, this engine that's mounted transversely in the middle of the car. What I know, this is so strange. And the first prototype of this whole thing, which uh-huh. is called the SA X, right? Or looks like Saks, yeah. um, was uh, was 1981. So two years after the design work started, that's when we saw this this initial uh, um, concept vehicle, I guess. Right, and that uh, that prototype, SA-X, was designed by a guy named Sichi Yamuchi. Mm-hmm. Um, and I apologize, of course, for my horrid pronunciation of Japanese. That's, um, uh, that's perfectly understandable, Ben. I, I think you do your best. Hey, thanks, man. You know, I don't even tackle it myself. I just let you <laughs> handle the names 
and, uh, and then I skate Inhale free. the hate mail. I skate free that way. Um, all right. So let's, let's talk a little bit about, um, I, I don't want to gloss over this part too much. Well, you know, we do need to say though, and I mean, I think I said that the concept, and that was really just a prototype in 1980. That, right. That's a good point because it wasn't public no, yet. No, no. The concept doesn't come about for another couple of years still. Yeah. And it's, and it's not really public yet. And, and the thing is that they're, they're intensely they're they're scrutinizing this design because it's something so unusual for Toyota to do at the time. Because you know, think about the cars that Toyota's producing then. Right. You look at the Corolla and vehicles like that that you know were just uh, again we said pedestrian, but they're um, not risky. No, they're not risky. That's the best way to put it. Maybe Ben is that you know they're they're just. Uh, uh, and I hate to say they're kind of run of the mill, but they're getting the job done. I mean, the, the sales numbers are big. People like the vehicles, of course. You know, sure, they do what yeah. they do well. Uh, but they're taking a, uh, a leap of faith here on this one and saying, "Man, we're going to do this uh, this unusual design." And uh, well, you've really taken it to the extreme here, right? So even even before they get the full prototype in '81, they're testing stuff from '79 to. Past 81, as we're going to find out in just a second. And when we say testing, we don't mean just a wind tunnel. These are tests. These are prototypes in Japan and California. And Scott, they're racing at actual race circuits. I know. And this is awesome. I find this really interesting because, and I'll let you say who it was, Ben, but they were, (laughs) they were testing at some big name race circuits here in the United States and California with big name racers. Right. Yeah. Uh, most. Notably, Formula One driver Dan Gurney uh, tested it out in Willow Springs. Yeah, which is exciting to me. I mean, that's really cool to think yeah. that he had his hand in this car in some way that Toyota went to Dan Gurney and said, tell us what you think. Take this out on the track and just beat the hell out of it and, and see what you think. Really give it a, a you know once over and give us your impression and then tell us what to do to make it better. And they did just that. So, you know, this thing has racing in its blood right from the very beginning from yep. prototype on. Yeah, because uh, it started evolving to an actual sports car, mm-hmm. and it also makes you wonder who in the racing world might be driving a secret prototype today. Which is really cool to think I about. Think, yeah, I think that's yeah, exciting. And, and you've also got to think about competitors at the time, because they were they were working on different vehicles, and not just Toyota, of course. Toyota was doing its own thing with the MR2, but right. there, were, there were competitors from Japan, Germany, Italy, the United States, and they were mm-hmm. creating cars like uh, the Honda CRX, the Mazda Miata. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nissan had a vehicle called the EXA, which I'm not really familiar with. Uh, Volkswagen had the Scirocco, which yeah. was a fantastic performance car at, at its time. Uh, the Fiat X19, um, X19, I've heard people call that the X19, X19, I would say mm-hmm. X19. Pontiac Fiero, of course, that we mentioned, and even Ford. Ford had that a- EXP vehicle, which was kind of a strange thing. Like yeah. one, kind of a, well, I don't know. We, it's that's an almost, outlier. That's almost like another podcast topic right there. I really. think we should strongly consider a X9 podcast. Maybe. Anyways, but they had some uh, some stiff competition in, in that day in that arena. So, you know, Toyota wants to get this out there, and they want to get it done right. Right. And they finally decide that we are ready to dip our toes in the water, I'll say. They don't commit to a production car. They make a concept car public in 1983 at the Japan Motor Show, and they call this the SV3, SV-3. Mm-hmm. Um, this this car was scheduled to launch in 1984 in the Japanese market. Um, so one thing that is different is they showed off the concept car, but they kind of already committed to making it a production car. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they uh, they knew what they were doing. And that's unusual, right, Scott? Yeah, I think that's pretty unusual. They were, you know, at the time, they would more wait for public opinion 
and then they would uh, they would you know take it back and do some scrutineering over the whole thing and decide what they like, what they don't like, what people like, what people didn't like into the public versus what the automotive press said about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there'd be a lot of uh, of uh, back and forth in the design studio, and it would take a little longer for it to come to production. But this is one that, uh, and this this happens more and more often now uh, than it did in the past, but. Um, at the time, you know, in, in the early '80s, it was not really all that uh, all that common for them to come out with a, a concept vehicle that they knew they were going to produce very soon afterwards. Yeah, and they did. I, I really enjoy the phrase you use, scrutineering. They did some scrutineering on the SV-3, and then boom, 1984, the MR2 hits Japan, yeah. and it is the first mass-produced mid-engine car to come from any Japanese manufacturer. Yeah, so it's already revolutionary in that way, but, um, and that's, and that's exactly where the MR2, you know, a lot of people say where the MR2 name come from. Like, what is, what is MR2? A lot of people say Mr. 2, and they've got, you know, a lot of, uh, they got a lot of, uh, um, ideas or theories that they kind of float out there about where MR2 comes from. It's really actually pretty simple. It's just the layout of the vehicle. It's the, it's, it's from mid-engine, mm-hmm. rear-wheel drive, two-seater. So yep. mid-engine rear-wheel drive two-seater, that's MR2, and that's uh, that's what it stood for all along from the very beginning. Now, we should also uh, talk a little bit about the, oh, wait, the other companies, the rumors. You want to talk about the rumors? Let's talk about some of the rumors, sure. Before we do. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian, someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy. And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already yeah. see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh, great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, 
Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, You've heard of a little company called Lotus. Ah, yes. You're talking about the Lotus rumor. Now, I kind of wonder where you're going with that. And uh, I I do have some information about, uh, about Lotus. They said that early on, they were thinking that because of the similarities between some of the Lotus designs and the MR2 at the time, they were saying, "Well, there's got to be some kind of uh, some kind of connection here that Lotus designed this car for Toyota." Yeah, I've got a couple of rumors about this. I can go into a little bit of detail here. Um, one rumor is that the MR2 was designed in-house at Toyota by Lotus engineers by specifically a Lotus suspension engineer mm-hmm. named Roger Becker. Oh, so they went so far as to name a specific person they at Lotus. It. That's the official rumor. All right. Well, now apparently early on there was some kind of influence that was probably exerted by Lotus on you know the Toyota engineers because they're working with Lotus. I can't see how that would not affect you to make a small, lightweight vehicle that's very powerful. I can understand that. I, I think everybody can get that. But mm-hmm. later on, you'll find that, you know, the, the design drifted a little bit away from what Lotus would normally do. Yeah. Do you want to hear the other rumor? I do. Okay, good. Uh, the other rumor is that the MR2 has, get this, Scott, an abandoned Lotus design. Did you ever hear this one? No, I did not. That it was possibly the M90 or the X100. Oh, really? No, wait. That's the, okay, the M90 or the X100 yeah. is a Lotus design. Yeah. So you're saying that it's something that was like an earlier design for one of those vehicles that was abandoned. So you're saying that Lotus trashed it, and then Toyota went in and said, oh, we kind of like that. Dug through the dustbin. Yeah. (laughs) Dug through the garbage. No no kidding. Well, this is this is according to Doc Bundy, who is a Lotus Sport Spirit driver. Um, He said that the MR2 is actually a version of the X100. Okay. Well, you know, I can understand that, and there's a a good reason behind some of this. And now, at the time, you got to remember Toyota, along with the Chapman family, were, were... Majority shareholders in Lotus at the time. We gotta remember that. But then yeah. soon after that, in 1986, General Motors acquired the majority control of Lotus. And I don't think right. a lot of people know that, that, that General Motors was owner of Lotus Motor Cars, or I'm sorry, Lotus Cars Limited, mm-hmm. uh, from 1986 until about 1993. And I don't think a lot of people really even, even know that in their history. But our listeners know this. You guys have, you guys have heard some of Lotus's story if you've checked out our mm-hmm. earlier episodes on that. Where we do talk about their, they they have a fascinating history. Mm-hmm. Lotus as a brand, as a company, and it's worth your time to check out our stuff on there. Philosophy really behind Lotus. I mean, there's yeah. a, it's an amazing, it's an amazing story. It's really cool. That's a great way to say it. it's a philosophy driven company. Well, let's talk a little bit more about this rumor, if it's okay with yeah, you. Yeah, sure. All right, so. We do know, as you said, Scott, that Lotus did quite a bit of work in Japan with Toyota, especially on suspension, on ride and handling, sure. right? And they did set up some MR2 prototypes for them. It's been it's been said that it was almost like a, cha- a training program um, because it's almost as though the Lotus engineers were training the folks in Toyota because Lotus had more experience with mid-engine sports cars. And then the student becomes the master. Is that <laughs> uh, what you're saying, Ben? Ah, uh, grasshopper. Yes. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. So they, they taught them, they learned their lesson, they went out, they went on, they developed their own system for this vehicle. Right, because there were, you know, there were, um, some cross-pollination sure. moments, like different po- components maybe, but I think what really happened, I, I think what's really happening here is that 
the Lotus team is teaching principles sure. that are later translating to the car. Fully understandable. I mean, when you think about Lotus as a company and what they do and what they've done, and uh, and I can totally understand that teaching and, and, and kind of guiding them in the right way and saying, this is the proper chassis setup for a vehicle like this. Um, we're going to show you how to do it here, and then you can kind of work on this in your, you know, by your own and, and, and figure out what works best for the MR2. I got one more thing. I'm well, sorry. One oh, that's more okay. Rumor. Is that okay? Of course. This is different. All right, a little bit of myth-busting here. Fiero, right? GM Fiero. I know the Fiero. So, you know, uh, there have been people who say, ah, Toyota ripped off the MR2 design from the GM Fiero. Okay. As near as we can find, here's what happened. They were concurrently inventing these things, and both teams found out about the other project while they were in the design phase. So... I think, from how it sounds, unless somebody can prove me wrong or point me in the right direction on this, I think what happened is that they were already on the way. They had already invested enough of their time, and they they got to the point where they couldn't turn back. Neither one of them wants to back down. No one wants to back down. You can't you can't find out that somebody else is doing something similar to your vehicle and then say, no, we're not going to play anymore. And, and you know what? I think in the case of the Fiero and the MR2 and when they came out, and I understand that they were very close in, in release, I know that, uh, I think that if you're working on something that's, dead, that's dramatically different, um, even if you're not going to be the first one to market, if you're going to lose out by a couple of months, you know, in the showrooms or whatever, I think you still come out with that product because it's revolutionary for your, your, your brand, your make. Absolutely. All right. So we, when we get to the MR2, it actually comes out in Japan. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already yeah. see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh, great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. 
Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. People are going nuts over this car. Yeah, the press loved it. The, uh, the I mean, the, the the public loved it. Everybody loved this thing. Of course, they loved the concept vehicle that came out in uh, what was it, 1983? I think we said. Uh huh. Yeah, 83 at the Tokyo Motor Show. Um, so people thought it was a, a great car, and it sold well. I mean, it was a two-seat mid-engine rear-wheel drive sports car. Um, man, it was, it was a long production li- uh, run. I mean, it went from 1984 all the way through July of 2007 when uh, production finally stopped in Japan. Right, through, um, uh, what, four generations? Three generations. Three generations. But there were, but there were some variants of both. So I can see where, I can see yeah. where four, you could think it was four, but it's, it's actually three generations Ooh. total. Uh, if you want to block those out, it's from 1984 to 1989, and that's when it had the kind of that angular, um, they call it origami-like lines in the article that I read, but, yeah. um, and I can, I can see that, but that's a real sharp crease, uh, type vehicle. Uh, the one that they smoothed everything out was 1990 to 1999, mm-hmm. and that had styling that a lot of people compared to uh, the Ferrari sports cars of the day. Yeah. So that's pretty incredible comparison, really, when you think about it. And then there was the 2000 to 2007 version, which uh, completely resembled the Porsche Boxster. I mean, it did have an, a very similar look, smaller, mm-hmm. but uh, but very much like the Boxster. And did we mention the stats for speed yet? Uh, we should. No, we have not. Uh, okay, so the MR2, when it first comes out, Gen 1, Top speed, 124 mile per hour. Uh, it's zero to 60 is 8.2 seconds. Wow. Not bad. Not, not fantastic. Not fantastic. That doesn't, that doesn't sound all that great because, you know, we're looking at it. We're looking at a vehicle that, you know, from 1984. What is that? That's, oh, man, that's 30 years now. It was 30 oh, years ago in 1984. Don't so, bring that up. No. <laughs> I can't believe it either. 30 years old. So 30 years ago, you know, a zero to 60 time of about eight seconds, it was moving along pretty good. Um, if you can get closer to six seconds, that was really going fast. Right. But again, this is an, supposed to be an affordable car. Exactly. So how much more will people pay to shave two seconds? Yeah, I guess so. It, it was, still gets Japan's car of the year. Oh, that's true. Yeah. It did win a lot of war of awards. Um, in fact, it, uh, it got a lot, well, a lot of awards in that first, for the first generation MR2. Yeah. Um, there's, uh, Road and Track and Car and Driver both chose the MR2 on their list of 10 best cars, which, uh, again, Oh man, it included cars like the Ferrari Testarossa, Ben, which, uh, we've heard that name a couple of times now in the past. I mean, with, with cars beating it that you wouldn't guess, like the Cyclone beating that. Yeah. Um, the MR2 you know, on the same list as the Ferrari Testarossa. It's just hard to believe when you look back, but you know, right. I, I guess so. Um, yeah, was, Jim One also wins Motor Trend Import Car of the Year. Yeah. And that's one we need to kind of add an asterisk to. Yeah. Now, import car of the year for 1985, you got to note that it was not eligible for the car of the year award, which is the United States version of that award, uh, because imports weren't um, eligible until 1999. So mm-hmm. it was, you know, another 15 years before an import would be able to win just the outright car of the year award. It had to be kind of categorized into that import car of the year uh, category. Mm-hmm. And that was 1985 when it won that. Um, no, you know what? And there's one other side note to that. There's kind of a, an interesting exception that I read about. What's up? Um, if you look at the at the Motor Trends Car of the Year Award, uh, we mentioned we just said that you know imports weren't eligible until 1999. If you look at the 1985 winner, it was the Volkswagen GTI. Now you might think that's a German car, right? 
That's a German car, right? <laughs> Good, Ben. Yes. Yeah, well, it was, turns out it was, that car was produced in Westmoreland, Pennsylvania, and kind of skirts it on a technicality. Uh, in that, you know, okay. it's, of course, its parent company is a, is a German company, but it was produced in Pennsylvania right here in the United States. So that's kind of an interesting side note on the whole thing. Um, Australian Press, uh, there was a, a Wheels Magazine. Uh, Wheels Magazine is the name of a publication there, and they chose the 88 MR2 as its favorite sports car, which is a pretty big honor. Um, car and Drivers 10 Best List from 1986 and 1987. And in 2004, Sports Car International ranked the MR2 number 8 on its list of top sports cars in the 1980s. So that's a pretty prestigious honor. Mm-hmm. That's skipping ahead a couple of generations. but No, actually, you know what, it's not. It, it, we're talking about 2004, it went back and named the 1980s vehicles of the time so um you know it went back 25 years it's and a said, retroactive reward. exactly it said you know what were our favorite cars two decades ago now at this point let's see uh, i don't know scott should we make this a two-parter oh man ben you know what we're just scratching the surface we're just now getting into the gen one stuff i think that's a good move um you know what i would like to do though is just maybe quickly i mean quickly sure talk about our experiences with MR2s because we do have uh, you know separate two separate experiences. Oh, in that's MR2s. right. Okay, yours you've talked about recently, right? Mm-hmm. With your friend who owned one. Yeah, I just touched on. Um, I just touched on this in an earlier podcast. One of my very close friends uh, who did give the permission to use his name in the podcast. Really? I'll say his full name. Yeah, Nathan Bohall, um, longtime friend of mine. He had a MR2 that was. I believe third gen and um we'll we'll probably talk about the gens in a later podcast but and we first mentioned this when we recently did our podcast on how to avoid a speeding ticket and something about this guy in Atlanta with his MR2 he got speeding tickets or not speeding he got parking tickets lots of parking tickets lots of parking, parking he tickets park in one place without parking tickets to the to the extent that this is what was the demise of that vehicle for him right well, this was this was one of them. This was one of the demises. He regularly railed against uh, the city of Atlanta's parking, um, I guess, their approach or the parking regime. He called it one time. And you know when somebody calls something a regime, they're serious. Yeah, they're out to get them. But that car uh, was such a fun thing. I, I didn't get to drive it. Because he was a little protective of it, which I understand. Understandable. But he babied it, and he took great care of it. Oh man, it was like a darkish. It was it was like a darkish blue black, and uh, it was always it's always clean inside. And I kept thinking for a while. I kept thinking, you know, one day he's gonna owe me enough to let me borrow this car, and my entire life will change. Sure, because it it has such a. It has such an uh, amazing and, and relatively unique in comparison to other vehicles you're likely to see, relatively unique layout. Um, that just as a machine and as a ride, it's probably going to stay with me as one of my favorite cars that I'd never got to drive. No, no kidding. It's that, it was that cool, huh? Now you have an experience too. I do. Mine goes back a lot farther though. Yours does go back, uh, much further and yours, uh, let's see. Did you get to drive it? I did. Ah. And this is the uh, this is the shocking part about this is, and I'll, I'll keep it brief because I think I've mentioned this in long, long time ago in yeah. several other podcasts. But yeah. my aunt owned an MR2. Well, actually, my 
aunt and my uncle owned an MR2 at one time. Uh, it was the very first generation, the very angular looking one, but it had the full wing on it. And I'm going to say, Ben, and I don't, I don't recall the specifics because I wasn't really focused on them at the time. I was just turning, you know, 17, 18, something like that at the time. Um, I think they had the supercharged version. And the weird thing about this is that my aunt and uncle were together, you know, married couple at the time. This kind of leads into what's going on. They were married couple at the time. I bought this uh, black and silver MR2, which is gorgeous, beautiful car. I believe, like I said, supercharged. It was really cool. I, yeah. I admired it from afar, you know, as they uh, drove in and drove out from my grandparents' house where we'd visit. And then my aunt and uncle got divorced. And my aunt, who I'm still, you know, in contact with, she's like the blood relative, she bought an identical MR2, and I think it was just a spite move, you know, like just to spite her husband, you know, her ex, now ex-husband. Oh, wow. And, and Ben, this is like, this must be Thanksgiving when I was there to visit. And it was kind of mm-hmm. like, it wasn't snow, snow on the ground or anything, but it was cold, ice cold. And it was like flurries and that type of thing. She let, she throws me the keys to this brand new MR2. No way. Yeah. And we both took it out and we went out and I thought it was just going to be going around the block, right? Well, she kind of, and this is Indiana, Northern Indiana. She kind of points me out towards the country. So we go out in all these, these country roads and we're out for a long time, like 45 minutes, something like that, right? Yeah. We're out on these country roads and she's telling me to push it, like just feel how, how awesome this car is. So here I am, 17, 18 years old, brand new MR2, supercharged, like I think it is. I think yeah. it was strong either way. This is the first car I ever drove over 100 miles an hour and it was on a, uh, on just a, a two lane country road that had bumps and hills and turns and everything. It was dangerous as hell. But so much fun. I mean, I can't, I, I'm, it's like, it's almost like an adrenaline rush just talking about it. A couple of questions. One, did she get the supercharged version as well? She, yeah, it was an identical car. Exactly identical. Black with the silver trim. It was beautiful. So I think the supercharged engine gets introduced to the U.S. in 88. That's, uh, you know what? That would just be about right. I mean, I would have been, I would have been 17 or 18 at that time. Last question. Yes. Did uh did the shifter freak you out? Oh, the shifter! We can't, we can't talk about the shifter. That shifter is so cool, and you and I were mentioning that. Yeah, it's so different. It is is completely different on the MR2, and this will be the last thing, and we'll okay, wrap it up. Okay, okay, and we'll go into part two later. But um, the shifter in an MR2, at least the first gen, and I don't know if it if it translates into second and third gen. It was really just a wrist flick shifter. I mean, they, they should it's like a little joystick. They say short throw shifter. They yeah. mean short throw shifter in this thing. You put your arm on an armrest and then it's really just a wrist movement to shift from first, second, third. It's, it's the most fun thing in the world. It's like, it's almost like a video game you're playing. Mm-hmm. It's really, really and it cool. It makes for some very smooth transitioning. It's, it is. And it's, and it's very, very tough uh, to get a grasp of that because I wanted to really, you know, jam it into first and pull it back into second. She said, no, just, just, it's just a wrist flick. That's it. And it is tough to get used to. But once I did, Oh man, was that thing fun to drive? Yeah, well, one one of my friends has called it a um, the it's like it's like going to play a game of ping pong when you've been growing up playing tennis. Ah, that's a that's a you good way I mean? to put it. Yeah, you've got to have a a gentle touch with it, but mm. um, and I don't mean gentle that you can't really you know jam it in gear, but but right. it's really you don't use your whole arm. You don't, you don't have your, to. Yeah, it's a different. You don't use your shoulder or your elbow. It. It's just your wrist. It's yeah. it's really a smooth motion. Well, we hope you have enjoyed the origin story of the MR2. Scott, you and I are going to return in our next episode to follow up on some of this stuff, right? Yeah, we're going to have to talk about a little bit more about Gen 1. We'll get through Gen uh, 2 and 3, and then maybe even talk about some motorsport applications. Uh, sure. there, there's definitely some racing going on, too. There might be some variants that find their way into I, I this episode. So. Yeah. All right, so in the meantime, check out our website, carstuffshow.com, for more information. Also, 
if you're on iTunes, uh, help us out. Give us a rating and a review. We'd love to hear what you think. Uh, you can tell us what you think on Facebook and on Twitter. We're CarStuffHSW at both of them. You can write an email to us. We will probably answer you. It may take us a few years. We're going to try. We'll do our best. Our email address is carstuffatdiscovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at howstuffworks.com. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.